0: To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work in your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, You will rejoice in your inheritance, and so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations, and their offspring among the peoples, All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorned his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make his righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Hear what the Spirit is saying to
1: the Remember, and we're here for our vision night. And uh, as I've been reflecting on Isaiah 61 this week, I've been pondering the reality of just what this chapter, the significance of this chapter is. And uh, this morning we're going to look at the last uh, the last four verses, verses 8 through to 11, and then we're going to step back and and take a look at it in its entirety. But as I've been praying and reflecting about this chapter this week, I've been wondering if there is a better chapter in the Old Testament to describe the kingdom of God revealed here on earth. There's some pretty uh, significant chapters in the New Testament that reveal the kingdom of God, and I think I've been thinking about uh, the first chapter of 1 Peter and the first chapter of Ephesians in terms of revealing the kingdom of God. And perhaps uh, undisputably, Romans 8 is one of those pinnacle chapters in the New Testament. But when I think about chapters in the Old Testament, I struggle to think of a chapter more significant in terms of revealing the kingdom of God here on earth than this chapter in Isaiah 61. So as I said, we began this journey uh, back in September and we've been studying through it over the last uh, few weeks. So let's pause for prayer and ask for God to to speak to us and reveal what he wants uh, through this word. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word and in particular, the richness of this prophecy that you laid on the heart of Isaiah. We pray that you would speak to us now. By your spirit, would you take this word and bring it to life in our hearts, in our minds, and in our very spirits? We ask now that you might humble our proud hearts, that you might strengthen our timid hearts, and that you might heal our broken hearts. That we might know Jesus, that we might live for his glory, and in his name we pray. Amen. Isaiah 61 is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. We know that. Jesus himself articulated that in Luke 4. It is the fulfillment in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and significantly in his coming again. Isaiah 61 is fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ in its entirety. Now, if verses 1 and 2 reveal the life of Christ, Uh, I want to suggest to you this morning that verse 8 is a great expression of the death of Christ, finding its fulfillment in the cross of Jesus at Calvary. If you haven't got your Bible open yet, turn with me to Isaiah 61, and I'm reading from verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Now, I love justice, the Lord says. I, the Lord, love justice. The preceding chapters have been a lot about the justice of God. In the previous chapter, in verse 59, we read that the Lord is displeased because he sees no justice in Israel. And of course, in Isaiah 58, there is a profound unpacking of what that justice looks like, and I'll come to that in a moment. But I don't know about you, when I think about justice the, the initial responses, I think about somebody going into a courtroom and someone being convicted, a murderer perhaps, and being put off to jail. And that might be your initial thought about justice. But in terms of Isaiah... The definition of justice is much, much deeper and richer than that. In Isaiah 58, where that profound passage where he talks about true fasting, we read the following in verse 6, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, To break every yoke, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see them naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Whenever you hear justice in the Old Testament, you can be sure that its twin righteousness is not too far away. And I sometimes think about justice and righteousness as two railway tracks, and those two railway tracks are what, are what bring the character of God's Justice and righteousness, they're never very far apart, and certainly that's true here in these verses in Isaiah 61. I the Lord's love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. It's an interesting uh, couplet that Isaiah describes there. I hate robbery and I hate wrongdoing. It seems to me when I was reflecting on this robbery, surely that's that's not a particularly uh, dire sin. It's not a particularly desperate offense. And yet the Lord says, I hate robbery. Why would he hate robbery? Well, we could quickly go back into the into the mosaic law and see well that's clearly breaking one of the 10 commandments thou shalt not steal as we reflect on robbery we could also think about where it ends up and I was doing a little bit of praying and a little bit of reflecting and as I did this I was a little bit convicted as a young seven-year-old and as a young seven-year-old many Many times through the summer year, summer months, uh, the Crossan households would go off to the A.M.P. show, and uh, Dad would always have some cattle and some sheep there, and the Crossans would be involved in the morning. Then we'd head off to uh, the side shows, and we'd take part in the side shows. And they used to have the lucky dip. Anybody remember the lucky dips at the A.M.P. shows? You would pay fifty cents, and then you would bring, you put your hand in these little Presents, you'd get a present and you'd unwrap a lucky dip and you'd get a 10 cent gift back. And I wasn't sure about this. And anyway, I was pretty familiar with the AMP show. And as a seven year old, I can remember going to the Mayfield show and uh, went to the lucky dip. And uh, the guy wasn't watching, and the seven year old put his hand and grabbed it off and, and ran without paying the 50 cents, I might add. And as I ran, the further I went, the more guilty I felt, and I unwrapped it, and there I sh- saw this 10-cent prize that I'd, I'd received, and, I, and I, was so, I felt so convicted, I threw it away, because I wasn't going to take this back and, and get the, the grilling from mum and dad's. The Lord hates robbery. The Lord hates robbery. Why would he hate robbery? He hates robbery because it reveals something about it in our hearts. It reveals something about our hearts. The Lord's second greatest commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself. Whenever you're stealing from another, you have disregarded your neighbor. The Lord hates robbery, but not just robbery, the verse goes on to say. He hates all wrongdoing. I hate robbery and wrongdoing but he loves justice. How much does the Lord love justice? He loves justice enough to send his only son to pay the price for our sins, not just the insignificant sins of stealing a lucky dip, but the profound sins of all wrongdoing, all idolatry, all turning away from God. How does he do that? Well, he goes on to say, in my faithfulness, I will reward my people. In God's faithfulness, he will reward my people. And so you will inherit. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Where does he do that? He makes that everlasting covenant with us at the cross of Calvary. At the cross of Calvary, God's everlasting covenant is revealed. And then we see this wonderful outworking of the cross of Calvary, of how far it goes. Look at verse 9. It's not just for Israel. It's not just for Judah. Their descendants will be known among the nations, their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people of the Lord. They are a people the Lord has blessed. If verse 8 is a reflection of the cross of Christ, I want to suggest that verse 10 is a reflection of his resurrection. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. And then Isaiah uses the metaphor of the married couple. The bride and the groom, and how they are adorned with their very best. I delight greatly in my Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has clothed me, any more, man, woman, boy, or child who comes in faith with the garments of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. I delight greatly in the Lord. I wonder if that's your experience this morning are you delighting greatly in the Lord this morning? Isaiah is using the language of the psalmist, in particular Psalm 37, and I'm going to read from Psalm 37 where we read the following, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord. Take delight in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. This is the gift of the resurrection life that you are now clothed in, clothed with garments of righteousness. Are you delighting in the Lord this morning? Have you been clothed with the garment of righteousness, the garment of the Lord's resurrection? Is that delighting your soul this morning. If verse 8 is a reflection of the cross, if verse 10 is a reflection of his resurrection, I want to suggest that verse 11 is a reflection and finds its ultimate fulfillment in his ascension. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and the garden causes the seeds to grow, So the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all the nations. The Lord said before he went to be with his father, he said he must return so that he could send his gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit, that that righteousness could spread beyond Judea, beyond Jerusalem, beyond Israel, to the ends of the earth. And so... The Lord now reigns at the right hand of the Father. He sends his Spirit on all of the earth. And so righteousness and praise springs up before all the nations. The cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. Isaiah 61 is fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you who are here a few weeks ago when we looked at the first few verses, we reflected on the profound metaphor, and I think this is the central metaphor of Isaiah 61 and verse 3, where he calls the people who have responded to the gospel, the good news that's proclaimed, he calls them oaks of righteousness. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. We reflected on the strength of the oak, on the beauty of the oak, of the endurance of the oak. Who is the ultimate oak? Of course, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our ultimate oak tree. And if he is our oak tree, what does that mean that we are? We're his acorns. We're the ones that are going to grow into those oaks of righteousness. I want to step back and reflect on this chapter in its entirety. What is it that the Lord might be saying to you? What is it that the Lord might be saying to us as a church from this passage? You remember it had its genesis during lockdown as I was reflecting on this chapter and I was praying on this chapter, I had the conviction that this was a word for Hope Church. So let's step back now and think about what we've been listening to over the last few weeks and what is it that God might be saying to us as a church. I said at the beginning that this chapter finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and ultimately in his return. So the question we have to ask is how now Is it revealed? How now is it revealed in our lives today? Jesus' model when he lived on this earth was to invite 12 disciples to come and follow me. He said, Come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And then over the next three years, he intentionally invested in those 12 and then he sent them out into the mission. He also very deliberately pulled three of those 12 aside Peter James and John and he invested in those three in an even even greater level he proclaimed to the crowds the good news to the poor he ministered to those who were mourning to those who were in need of healing He taught and discipled the 12. He invested intensely in those three. And we might describe that ministry as relational discipleship. As I've been reflecting on this and as I've been reflecting more deeply on the Lord's model of ministry, relational discipleship seems to define it in my mind. This Thursday, I was sitting with two of the senior pastors of the two largest churches in Dunedin, and they were both lamenting about how difficult it was today, and I think the big churches are really struggling uh, as they wrestle with all the COVID restrictions, and the pair of them were reflecting on their model of attractional, we might say, attractional ministry, attracting the crowds. And we, the three of us, talked about the need to be investing in relational discipleship, And perhaps that's one of the opportunities that lies before us, the very model that Jesus models. Over the last few weeks, Richard and I have been sitting with a man called Bill Murray via Zoom, of course, and uh, he is an ex-navigator, and he goes about coaching discipleship with church leaders. And uh, he has this great definition of discipleship. And it goes like this. He says, come and walk with me as I walk with Jesus. Come and walk with me as I walk with Jesus. And Bill's emphasis is to declericalize uh, this, this word discipleship and say this is something that all of us are called to. This is what Jesus modeled. And this is the way in which he expects his kingdom to now come come and walk with me as i walk with jesus we don't know what lies ahead of us in the coming months in the coming years but we know we do know that we have been called to follow the lord jesus we do know that he calls us to follow him and when we follow him his promises that he will not leave us he will not forsake us be with us to the ends of the age come and walk with jesus and learn how to serve others come and walk with jesus and take the good news and proclaim it to others come and walk with jesus and experience the great exchange that we see in isaiah 61 where our ashes are replaced with beauty where our mourning is replaced with joy, where that sense of despair, that sense of foreboding that is so pervasive today is replaced with a garment of praise. Come and follow Jesus and Isaiah's promises. You're going to be clothed with a garment of praise. So what does this word say to us today? Little acorns that are going to grow to be oaks of righteousness. Relational discipleship born in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I want to suggest, is the way that God's kingdom comes. What does that kingdom look like? Well, it looks like Isaiah 61. And what's the invitation for us? It's the invitation for us to be transformed so that we can transform the world. That we can not just pray your kingdom come but we can live out god's kingdom come so my invitation to you this morning born out of isaiah 61 is come and walk with me as i walk with jesus the spirit of the sovereign lord is on me it's on you it's on his church because he's anointed us to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent us to bind up the brokenhearted. He sent us to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And they will be called oaks of righteousness. We will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. So I invite you, church, come and walk with me as I walk with Jesus. And let's see Isaiah 61 being worked out in our place, at our time. And all the uncertainty and all that's going on, come and walk with me as I walk with Jesus. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. Father, as we have been journeying through this chapter... You remind us afresh that this chapter finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and ultimately it will find its fulfillment when he returns again to judge the living and the dead. We thank you for the riches of your kingdom that are displayed in this word. We thank you for... The preciousness of this word, but we don't just want this word to be something we dwell on, we meditate on, and we're encouraged by. We want this word to shape our lives. We want Jesus to shape our lives. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you will pour out your anointing on us as a church in the midst of uncertainties in the midst of all that's going on in our lives, individually, corporately, and globally, we thank you for the promise of your kingdom coming here on earth as in heaven. And so we do continue to pray that that's exactly what would happen. Pour out your spirit on each of us. Unite us and continue to keep us united in Christ as we minister in his power And for his glory, may we be indeed those oaks of righteousness, a planting for the display of your splendor. In Jesus' name we pray and for his glory. Amen.